2 Samuel chapter 17 at verse 27. And it came to pass when David was come to Mahanaim that Shobai, the son of Nahash of Rabbah, of the children of Ammon, and Machir, the son of Amiel, of Lodibar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite of Rogelim, brought beds and basins and earthen vessels and wheats and barley and meal and parched grain and beans and lentils and parched pulse and honey and butter and sheep and cheese of the herd for David and for his people that were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So we find David here in Mahaniam. And just to bring you up to speed, as I suggested, I would remind you that as appointed and promised and prophesied by God through Nathan to David for his sin with Bathsheba, that the sword would arise from his own house. David was brought to repentance and he was granted forgiveness for his sin, but nevertheless, God promised. The sword will not depart from thy house. And it almost seems, as we've been studying through these portions of God's word in 1 and 2 Samuel, that David was taken unawares, even though he heard that promise, that threat, if you will. He was somewhat taken unawares by the machinations of his own son, Absalom, who killed Amnon after Amnon had violated Absalom's sister, Amnon's own half-sister. Absalom saw that he was slain after a couple of years, saw that Amnon was slain. And Absalom had to go and hide himself and flee, for he was guilty of murder, even fratricide. So he fled, but eventually, through Joab and others, he was brought back. And he began rather conspicuously, but again, I say, it seems like David was blind. Uh, I remember talking with a, situ- a particular issue to a, one of the professors at seminary and, about psalmody, and he frankly admitted, and I thought very highly of him for this, when he said, maybe I've got a blind spot. But here, I think that we see David, with regard to Absalom, had a blind spot. And it took almost a, a, an upheaval, and in fact, we could call it that, for him to actually realize that his own son wanted to not only take the throne away from him, but in order to do so, take David's life. In other words, to kill his own father. So David, immediately when he heard that Absalom was putting together an army, he fled the capital city of Jerusalem with whatever he could manage to take, which wasn't very much. He had a small band with him, and they fled the city. And that's where we find David. In Mahaniam, he has managed to cross the river to pass over the Jordan, and he's got a little bit of relief. And again, there were his friend, uh, a prophet, uh, uh, something of a chief of staff, Hushai uh, managed to thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. Of course, it was God that was doing that. 
And all this uh, enabled David and his small band to escape. But now, here we find him in Mahanium, and we find all these friends. Our last message, we dealt with how the church is like this. We have friends. In the providence of God, many of us uh, have families, kinsmen according to the flesh, that are in fact reduced as far as their being friends. But God provides in the church friends for his people. He has promised this, and he does keep his promises. But here we see these friends, Shobai and and Machir and Barzillai, bringing all these needs to David. And he's given something of what we're calling a, a period of rest and relaxation. He's given a little bit of reprieve from the flight, and he's, and he's also has brought to him all these things that he needs. It, as I was reading, it struck me how similar that is to what we've been seeing about Houston. People bringing and striving to meet their needs, even water. And, and so we find that David has this period of rest, but he doesn't actually have much rest, and he knows that. But we can imagine him taking uh, advantage, taking occasion perhaps, asking himself, how did this happen? How did I get here? Why has this come about? David just had a very narrow escape. And now he's enjoying his first opportunity for some, for some, albeit little, rest and relaxation. God's providence has here afforded him some time of retrospection, that is looking back and asking himself, how did I get here? What brought this about? Perhaps we have been in his shoes. Frankly, I would be surprised if each one of us were honest with himself that they wouldn't have found themselves more than once perhaps even often in the shoes of David here, between the proverbial rock and a hard place. How did I get here? What has happened? What was done? What have I done? This would involve not only retrospection, looking back, but also introspection, looking inside ourselves. Search me, O God, and try me. David may have been crying, even at that time as the author of that psalm. Looking inside ourselves, into our thoughts and into our feelings. In colloquial terms, we might be saying, what the heck happened? But it brings about, by God's blessing, an occasion of retrospection, looking back, what brought us to this place, and looking inside ourselves, introspection. I believe this is what Paul heartily recommends, if not commands, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in that verse 28, that portion that we'll be looking at toward the end of our message as we turn our thoughts to the Lord's table. 
Paul gives the instructions regarding the Lord's table. But he, he adds toward the end of those instructions, but let a man prove himself. Let a man prove himself. Now I know many of your translations say let a man examine himself. And I would take mild, I underline mild, I would take mild issue with that rendering. I believe let a man prove himself is more adequate. The word dokimazo seems better rendered prove rather than examine. Examine is to search or inquire into. And that, of course, is part of introspection and retrospection. But to prove is to cause to be accepted as genuine, to prove. And I believe that Paul is calling each of us as we come to the Lord's table. Let a man prove himself. Let a man understand, if we can use those terms we just used, accept it as genuine. To approve. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says a similar, makes a similar statement in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He says, try which could be examined. Try your own selves, whether ye are in the faith. Prove your own selves. It's not sufficient, you understand. It's not, it's not adequate, you see, to, to just simply take an examination. Many of us, some of us many times have taken examinations and we didn't prove anything except that we hadn't learned anything. And that could be the case here. The examination itself is not satisfactory in and of itself. It's a path to proving something. It's not sufficient to take an examination. We must pass the examination. James in 1.12 has said, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation... In the New American Standard Version, it, it reads, who perseveres under trial, we could say examination, but blessed is the man that endureth temptation, or who perseveres under trial, for when he hath been approved, he shall receive the crown of life. The same thought, same idea, I believe here. To prove or to examine with the expectation of approving, to pass the examination. Peter said the same thing fundamentally in 1 Peter 1 at verse 6. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, when he says these things, wherein ye greatly rejoice Though now for a little while, if need be, ye have been put to grief in manifold trials. That could be rendered temptations. We could think of it as examinations, trial. I mean, we think of a, of a judicial trial and people are examined, are they not? Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, ye have been put to grief in manifold trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold that perisheth, though it is proved by fire, may be found unto praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter gives us the same idea. 
about proving our own selves. And Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 11 is saying, prove yourselves before you come to the table. Prove your own selves. Think of providence. Think of providence. In examination, examination questions could be such as some of these following. Why? With regard to our being found in the faith and able to discern the body. Why did I ever begin reading the Bible? Why did I ever begin reading the Bible when no one in my immediate family ever read the Bible? Why did I? Why was I led to begin listening to gospel messages on the radio? When most of my siblings were listening to rock and roll, why did I listen to gospel messages? And why did I eventually begin attending church in order to place myself under the preaching of the gospel, under the preaching of the word of God? Why did I? And none of my family. This is not simply a Chris Christopherson, why me, Lord? But it is in a sense, why was I singled out? And how was I singled out? What were the things that happened in my life that prompted me to do these things, that prompted me to make such decisions when there was no prompting from within my family? Or my acquaintances, for that matter. One writer has said this about providence and salvation. He says, God can so order the events of a person's life to ensure that he or she becomes a Christian. Does that sound a little bit like the accusation of being made a puppet that is turned toward us often? But that's not what this writer intends at all. He's saying that God uses providence he uses circumstances, he uses issues to bring us to himself, those whom he has chosen, those whom he has placed in Christ from before the foundation of the world. He goes on to say Paul endorses this view when he writes of God separating him from his mother's womb and calling him by his grace. In Galatians 1.15, Paul says, but when it was the good pleasure of God who separated me, placed in Christ from before the foundation of the world, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me. In me, Paul, this, this wicked Pharisee, persecuting the body of Christ, seeking to imprison, seeking to kill. We know Paul, Saul that is, was brought to Christ, as we understand at any rate, on the Damascus Road. We don't know when his heart was regenerated. Do you know when yours was? I don't know when mine was, but I praise God that it was. Perhaps the sight of Stephen being stoned to death while he held the coats of those that did the deed. 
and stood by watching. Perhaps the Lord brought that back to his thoughts, even giving him a picture in his mind of this grand witness, Stephen, suffering martyrdom through stoning. I only say perhaps this is the sort of thing that the Lord may choose to use. Perhaps the sermon of Stephen in Acts 7, perhaps that came back to his mind. But of course, the, the end of the matter, the nail in the Pharisee's coffin, to put it that way, the nail in his old self was delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ himself as he met him on the road to Damascus. It is as if the two great focal points, two great focal points, birth and the second birth, are linked by one chain of divine providence. They're brought together. Paul, as this illustration, separated from his mother's womb, and then, in providence, brought to his knees on the Damascus Road. Two great focal points, birth and second birth. An important part of our faith as Christians is that God cares for us and that the detail and the direction of our lives, I would say every step, every breath, every thought are under the purposeful control of our loving God. And he moves us. And he uses means to move us. Do, do we not find this truth even in Isaiah? Of course we do. We just sang about it. But Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, I believe we find this truth pronounced even by God himself. Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. Hear what God has said. Thus saith Jehovah, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer. That just jumped out at me. The King and his Redeemer. Oh, really? The King is the Redeemer. The Redeemer is our King. What does this do to this anti-lordship salvation at any rate? Here even Isaiah addresses the problem. The king is the redeemer. The redeemer is the king. The Lord is our savior. Our savior is the Lord. You can't have one without the other. Thus saith Jehovah the king of Israel and his redeemer. Jehovah of hosts. I am the first and the last. Besides me there is no God. I am the first and the last. I have been doing this from before. The first. I have been doing this from the first to the last. Bringing my people unto me through my son. And he goes on. And who as I shall call and declare it. And set it in order for me. Setting in order. Since I established the ancient people. God has done all these things. He set everything in order. Nothing happens apart from him. Nothing will happen apart from him. Nothing has ever happened apart from him. I will set it in order for me since I established the ancient people and the things that are coming and that shall come to pass. They shall come to pass. 
Not by accident. Not by fate. Not because of some luck. Not because of some charm. But because God has declared it. He goes on to say, Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have I not declared unto thee of old and showed it? He shows it through his providence. And ye are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Yea, there is no rock. I know not any. You see, he shows it to us. That's the retrospection. We look back and say, wow, I met so-and-so in such-and-such a circumstance, and he told me about this radio program where they were preaching repentance unto God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you honestly, <laughs> I trust him always honest, but I'll tell you that had that not happened to me, I doubt that I would have ever turned the radio to that station. You understand what I'm getting at? God moves. He has ordained and he fulfills. He brings to pass what he has ordained. He says, I am Jehovah of hosts. He's the one who has the entire host of created things always under his control. We and all the rest of creation live and move and have our being in him. We live and move in him. By him, through him. He's the first and the last. He represents himself here as functioning throughout the entire course of history. In providence, through providence. He brings to pass what he has ordained. Does anything, does anything occur apart from the sovereign will and working of our God Almighty? He who takes notice of a single sparrow falling to the ground. Does he not take notice of every detail of our being? He numbers the hairs of our heads. Now that's amazing. Even when we may be losing some of those hairs, he still knows exactly how many there are on our heads. He numbers them. And he takes notice of a simple little sparrow falling to the ground. Does not God's sovereignty attest his will being done in all things? God's will being done in all things. Paul has famously claimed in Romans, you know, that to them that love God, all things work together for good, even to them that are called. What is included in all things? Is anything excluded? Nothing. One wrote these lines, this brief statement that I really love saying everything is a wheel of providence. Everything is a wheel of providence. And this relates to the life of David as well as our own. Providence relates to all things. Providence relates to the lives of every man, every woman, every child, as well as the entire creation. Providence is the working out of the will of God. It's as simple as that. And the will of the Lord shall always be accomplished. If there were not a God to create, nothing would have been. 
Nothing ever would have been. And if there were not a God to uphold, all would soon come to nothing again. We read even of Christ in Hebrews 1.3, upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding all things. Nothing happens apart from God. So when David asked the question, or when we've asked the question, what am I doing here? How did I get here? We may not have the immediate answer, but we know who is behind it. Because nothing happens apart from God. Charles Spurgeon's catechism asked the question, what are God's works of providence? What are God's works of providence? Just what is providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, his most wise, his most powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions, all things. And Psalm, the psalmist David says in 103, Jehovah hath established his throne in the heaven, and his kingdom ruleth over all. All things. It's not like the deists try to declare that God has simply wound up this clock, this giant watch or something, and he's looking at it winding down. No. He governs all things, every detail, everything, all things. All things mean all things. There's nothing out of the purview of God. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He is holy and righteous and he cares for his people. We read of that in Hosea and I love that passage so I don't mind turning to it again. In Hosea 11, that beautiful, perhaps enigmatic, but beautiful nonetheless, Hosea 11:8. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I cast thee off, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? My heart is turned within me. My compassions are kindled together. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. The Holy One in the midst of thee. That's God. Who has provided all things for his people because he cares for us. What about the table set before us? Did not providence provide the table that set before us? Was there not providence at work in the crucifixion itself? Are we not told by Peter in his sermon? In Acts 2, him delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. The determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. That could be another term for the providence of God. The determinate counsel and foreknowledge. The providence of God. Nebuchadnezzar grasped this truth. Remember that account of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4? And how that, that according to the prophetic utterance of Daniel, all this came to pass on the king Nebuchadnezzar. But after he was driven out and he was out in the, in the dew and the nails in his hair grew, he was like an animal and crazed in his mind as it seems. At the end of the days, we read in 434 of Daniel, at the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven and mine understanding returned unto me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him that liveth forever 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Listen, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand. None can say unto him, what are you doing? And he works all things through his providence. His will. The will of providence. The will of God. The determinate counsel. Christ knew all about this. He knew that Judas Iscariot would betray him when he chose him to be one of his disciples. He knew that all the machinations of Pilate to free him would fail. He knew that the Jews would demand his death. God's determinate counsel. God's will. We read in this uh, 53 of Isaiah about that determinate counsel. Yet it pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of Jehovah shall prosper in his hand. It pleased God. It was according to his will. It pleased God. He put him to grief. He made his soul an offering for sin. This was the pleasure of Jehovah in order that he might, that Christ might, that our Savior might, that the Messiah might see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied, that he would satisfy the Father's justice for his people, that he might justify the many, that he might bear their iniquities, all through the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of our God. These were accomplished through God's determinate counsel and foreknowledge. Praise God for his determinate counsel and foreknowledge to save his people. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee. And we know that our thanksgiving and praise is not today what it shall be in heaven. And we look toward that day. Oh, Lord our God, be pleased. May it be thy determinate counsel to bless us again this morning. Even as we come to the table, we ask through Jesus Christ. Amen.